Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I made one of the most disgusting things ever. <laughs> you know, I, my sister had made some sort of baked chicken legs where the skin had gotten all crispy and she had put some sort of Italian dressing on it. I was younger and I tried to, you know, mimic that and it just wasn't cooking. I don't remember what temperature I put it in at. And for some reason, I got the idea that I should add milk. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Anita Lowe, New York City chef and the author of a new book, Solo, a modern cookbook for a party of one. Also on the show, we have Matt Sartwell of New York City cookbook store Kitchen Arts and Letters talking about the new season. But first, Matt, what did you and Anita talk about? We talk about Anita Lowe's very unique and special place in the New York City restaurant scene. She's a mentor. She's a leading light. But she's also one of New York's finest chefs, and she ran this restaurant in Nisa for years. We also talked about her latest book, Solo, which is cool. It's it's about cooking for one and how, um, you know, there's lots of fun in actually cooking for one. It isn't all a big bummer. Chefs don't get to do it that much either. No, not at all. And and she also tells a lot of really cool stories in the head notes, and I just I, I think it's a it's a cool book. Here's Matt talking to Anita. Hi. Hey. So great to have you at uh, Books Are Magic. I love this store. I've known you for a decade in the industry, maybe even longer, and you're just a connector, and you foster relationships with all sorts of chefs, men, women, gay, straight, et cetera, et cetera. You foster this this vibe of, of just nurturing. How, how did you get into that position? And do you, I mean, you can disagree with me, too, of course, but... But I, I just feel Mama like... Mama Lowe, I, yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that, okay? Yeah. I wasn't going there, but... Um. Yeah, I think owning a restaurant um, necessarily makes you someone who brings people together. Um, you know, you're creating community. Uh, yeah, I, I really found my community through the restaurant. Um, just even the you know community of chefs um, yeah. around you know around the planet even um, has has been wonderful. I want to f- start. I'm going to go back to your beginnings in uh, in Birmingham, Michigan. Because <laughs> I'm from Kalamazoo, I'm, I'm, I, my sister lives near Birmingham currently. Did you, uh, as a youngster growing up, did you embrace Detroit's kind of diverse food scene? Were you dining out in all the restaurants that the Detroit inner city and the suburbs have to offer? We did, we did, and we also went, uh, you know, across the border into um, Canada. To you know, have like really straight Canada, nice Canada, yeah. We don't talk right there, yeah, yeah, Windsor. Yeah, Windsor. We, there was like some of the best Chinese food you could have there. There was a little French restaurant that we used to go to. Um, I want to say it was called Le Bistro or something like yeah. that. But it was, uh, yeah. But I, I remember loving that restaurant. So and downtown, I remember having, um, I remember having Italian tripe when I was Whoa. young, and it was 
like yeah it was just the best tribe i'd ever had um as yeah. like you're eight or ten or young younger yeah, I was young. Yeah, I was young. Yeah, uh, so my you, parents took me there. Yes, so your parents really. It sounds like they they fostered this this environment of food. It's clear. Yeah, they were food obsessed. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> were they were they cooking as well? I mean, what, what what was that like growing up? Yeah, my mom was a was a great cook. Um, you know, both my parents worked, um, so we had you know various nannies from different backgrounds cook for us as well. Um, yeah, so we had like lots of different types of cuisines. My um yeah, I think my stepfather cooked once and that wasn't that wasn't a good that, <laughs> that was good. That good was only one yeah. time. <laughs> so. I mean, tell me going back, like what were, what was like your first dish that you actually made for your family? Like what's what's a memory of early cooking for yourself? Oh my god, I I made one of the most disgusting things <laughs> ever. It was um my sister had made some sort of baked chicken legs where the skin had gotten all crispy and she had put some sort of Italian dressing on it. Um, Which is not a bad thing fundamentally, right? Putting right, Italian dressing. Right. I was younger and I tried to you know, mimic that and it just wasn't cooking. I don't remember what temperature I put it in at. And for some reason I got the idea that I should add milk. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Midwest, I guess, in a way. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> we yeah. drank a lot of milk growing up, right? <laughs> I don't really drink as much milk. Oh as God, I do. yeah, I, yeah. I see people like older people in the Midwest drinking milk with their dinner. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> ooh. It's like milk and wine. Two glasses. I've seen that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you ended up. You will jump around a little bit of the narrative. But like, you made it to France, though, right? Like after university, you you ended up in France. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I was studying French in in, in, at, uh, in college. So. In college, and then um, is that where you started cooking professionally, or at least learning the professional craft of cooking? Uh, exactly. Yeah, I um, ended up in cooking school um, the summer after my junior year in Paris. Okay. So, yeah. Which I think leads to the book solo. Um, you know, the book is really unique in that it um, each head note, which is the the text before the recipe, is is a story. There's often um, a memory of travel or a memory of of your restaurants. But tell me, let's go back to the days in France. I mean, what are some of the recipes in the book that are informed by these early days of your cooking career? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a braised um, short rib, and that takes a little bit longer, but the prep time is very minimal, actually. Um, that's very French. Um, that comes with a caramelized, glazed piece of um, endive. Mm-hmm. That's that's very French cooking school. Um, and I yeah, I love those flavors. Um, I also there's also a salad in there that. It was, you know, you could pretty much get in any of the, um, yeah, in in any of the little cafes around. Yeah, the, well, the cafes even like you know where you just go and have a drink. They would have, yeah, I guess they were bistros, but they, you know, they seem from the outside they look like predominantly cafes. Good yeah. being, you're very French in correcting me the difference between bistro and cafe. I appreciate. Sorry. That. No, no, it's. Yeah. I'm a chef. I'm a little bit I'm, neurotic. No, no, and I'm. Pre- <laughs> I try to write precisely and speak precisely. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but why why write about dining and cooking and being solo? Uh, it's when I saw this months ago in the list of books coming out, I was like, that's a really interesting idea. It hasn't really been done. It has been done. It's just a, a you know. Um there, there I, you know, there aren't a lot of cookbooks out there that have been written for one, but there's certainly Joe Yonan um, yeah. has has written a couple. Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. What is her name? <laughs> Judith, Judith Jones, Jones had Judith her Jones book. Had yeah. One, yeah, and there's yeah. like microwave cooking for one, which is a big gag book. You know that book is right. Yeah, right. kind of a exactly. funny joke. You can yeah. buy it for a friend. Yeah. But but I think your, yours is like a modern book from a chef. I mean, this is kind of a unique element, though. Yeah, I actually, I I told some chefs at an event the other day, and they laughed at me. You know, I was like, I'm ready to go for one, and they they all just broke out laughing. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> It's selling really well. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that. Good one. There's a lot to unpack there, but we'll keep it. But but wouldn't it wouldn't it be actually more pragmatic for a chef? Because a lot of chefs do cook for one after shift at home if you are making food at home, right? Yeah, I mean I think most of us probably aren't cooking at home after yeah. you know. We're picking up something on the way home okay. or we're picking it food all night on the line um and, we, and then we eat staff meal as well so uh yeah what makes a great solo meal then i think a great solo meal um is it it it, it fills your need at that moment so it in it should fill your time needs as far as how much time you want to be spending in the in in the kitchen cooking, which could be, you know, sometimes I want to spend, you know, several hours just, you know, just to have that meditative cooking experience. Sometimes I just want to get it on the table as fast as possible. Um, it should also fill all of your craving needs. And, you know, I think it should be balanced if possible. But sometimes not. Sometimes, super, sometimes, decadent. Not. sometimes super decadent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> which I love. Well, have a salad with it. If you're going to have mac and cheese, maybe yeah. have a salad. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> This is a really interesting story about um, the last date you had with an Icelandic artist. She said she was quite the artist. She was beautiful, but she made amazing sculptures. Or... Oh, yeah. She's, yeah, she was. I fell so hard for this woman. I, we dated for about two, two weeks. Of, two weeks, yeah. We had. Um, yeah, it was like, yeah, it's like, I will have your babies. <laughs> yeah, calling the U Haul right now. Um, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, Can well, I back she, up? This is for uh, this is a head note for a recipe: um, Arctic char and a shower of skier, which Icelandic yogurt. Skier. Yeah, and Arctic char is all all comes from um, Iceland as well. Okay, so, so. The, the context is this is the head note that I read. So continue your story. Okay, yeah, and yeah. The, the recipe actually is not that great of a recipe, but I <laughs> I wanted to include this story. Um, yeah, she. So on our last date, it's been two weeks, and um, she says, "Okay, meet me in Riverside Park." And so we're we're walking up the park, and we're talking, and you know, ambling, and she's picking up like um, things to use in her art, you know. And you know, suddenly she's like, "Do you see that?" And it's basically like a a dead body. It was like a head. Basically, it is yeah, it a is dead a body. Head body. Yes, thank you for correcting okay. me. <laughs> <laughs> you see a dead body floating in the Hudson River. Yes. Oh, God, it was horrible. And it was floating upstream. So I was like, oh, my God, you know, you know, what are we going to do? And so I called 911. And um, 
at the same time, like I'm talking to nine one one, I have we have to follow it up the river because we don't want to like lose it because it's you know it's it's slowly moving up with the tide, and I'm talking to the you know EMT. They keep on changing from the EMT to the fire department to the police department, and everyone wants to know where we are. It's like I. Yeah, it's like give me your cross street. We're in the park. I don't know what cross street we're at. You know, like I'm like, like and so finally, you know, after about a half an hour of this, you know, walk we get all the way up to like the end of the park. They come and meet us, and they find them, and then, um, yeah, and apparently the guy had, you know, committed suicide, and they they didn't never found the body, but then we go for dinner. And this was like those- <laughs> Where did you go? Do you remember? So, somewhere in Harlem. Oh, we went to um, what's the Miss Amy Amy Ruth? Because okay. we're up in Harlem at yeah. this point. We walk all around Harlem. We go to a couple of like Senegalese grocery stores and stuff like that. This is the longest date ever. I think it was maybe eight to ten hours yeah. worth of date. Yeah. And at the end of this, and and then you know, and somebody died, and then. <laughs> And then at the end of this, um, you know, we're getting ready to, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm thinking that I'm going to get invited back to her apartment, which is also on the Upper West Side. And, you know, she says, you know, I think we really should just be friends. I don't want to date you anymore. Oh, man. (laughs) And I was so crushed. And so I had this, um, that Valentine's Day, I always had something for the lonely person. It's a Valentine's Day recipe. It's a, yeah, so on, on the Anissa Valentine's Day menu we had, and you always have to do a special menu because it's a big seller and et cetera. So I did the, the you know, a version of that, which yeah. was the, yeah, hot dates. It was uh, Icelandic char with hot dates, which were wrapped in bacon and Funny. baked, and then with a shower of skier. I did a Bobby Flay. Yeah, uh, yeah I like the shower of skier. It's good. Yeah. Let's talk about your restaurants. You... Opened in 2000, right? You've opened, I mean, yep. 2000. So let's just first talk about like the difference in opening in New York in 2000 versus like, almost 20 years later, 2018. Well, completely different. Completely different scene. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, there's so much to talk about. I, I really, you have you've such perspective. Like, let's share some of the differences right now. That, like, what's it, what was it like opening in 2000? Like, what was the most important media? What were you focusing on? Well, we had, the, yeah, the most important media was the New York Times. That you know, we weren't looking at anything else. You know, we we wanted those that New York Times review. Um, you know, there were a lot of chefs just starting to open their own personal restaurants, um, smaller, you know, upscale yet casual, um, which was like you know, Dufresne was opening his place. Uh, you know, Dan Barber had just opened Blue Hill, um, etc. Um, yeah, there were a lot more cooks. There are no cooks anymore. I mean, are there just too many restaurants? I'm not mm. quite sure. Is that yeah? What's what is the cost? Is it people don't want to do it, or is it just too many restaurants? I am not sure. I actually think part of it is that um, no cook can afford to live in New York City, so everyone's fleeing. Mm. You know, um, I would flee. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you haven't, thankfully. Well, no, I yeah, I love New York, but yeah. then I'm not a cook anymore. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of rent, let's talk about that. How much has it gone up? Oh, it's ridiculous. Like, you know, I live in the West Village, which is, you know, fancy. But, you know, Bleecker Street, is. there's so many 
empty stores. Like there's this little tiny restaurant that I was like, oh God, you know, my, my partner is also a chef. And I was like, that would be a great place for you. And it had like a wood burning oven. And, you know, it, it only f- sat maybe, you know, 40 seats and it's sort of more cramped. They wanted $25,000 a month for that. Oh, man. Yeah. What, which place is that? That was what the, space? It used to be August. Yes, the August space. That's what I thought. That, yeah. that's, a, that's like one of the few wood-burning ovens in the downtown area. Yeah, yeah. They wanted 25 k for that? 25 yeah, k It's like, well, crazy. that's not a restaurant then. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, even, I don't even know how you can sell retail, you know? Mark Jacobs, how do, how do they make money? I don't, you know, uh, they, they sell yeah. a lot of boots, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, twenty five k for August. What what was your first round, Anissa? Round. Uh, that started. I don't remember, but I think it started at like eight k or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's not that long ago. It's just the city is. It's yeah. So everyone's doing fast casual now. You know. Yeah. Um, or you know, I think there's a lot of places that are doing, you know, really high end, just a counter, and then so you can charge, you know, two hundred and fifty, three hundred dollars a head, and you know, and that. That model seems to work better because there's less, you know. Do you, does that excite you as a as a chef? That style. Um. Well, I not really. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I love eating. You know, getting that sort of personal attention from a chef. But um, you know, I personally can't do it anymore. I I had you know I I literally worked myself to the bone. I um, my my knee just um I ground away all the cartilage and had to replace it, and it hasn't been that. Yeah. successful so um yeah i mean outside of the physical um your physical condition do you do you miss do you miss cooking do you miss working in a restaurant yeah i mean there's certain things i miss about it i don't yeah but overall i'm i think i made the right decision i'm yeah. you know happier i think good yeah but is there one thing you miss oh yeah absolutely yeah i miss having you know i'm i miss cooking and having someone clean after me that's <laughs> that's awesome yeah I miss all of my little, you know, microgreens. I miss I miss having like that entire you know, you know, having that big walk-in refrigerator was kind of awesome. Yeah. I mean, let me just be straight up. You're so modest, but Nisa was an amazing restaurant. Oh, it was you. an amazing. I think there's so many fans in here and uh, we miss having you and we miss that restaurant like for real. Oh, thank you so much. So, I I I hope at some point you will be cooking again in some way. Yeah, I'm hoping to um, get... Uh, so <laughs> there's you. a round of applause in the yeah. back. I like hearing that, yeah. I'm hoping to... Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm hoping to get um, some sort of consult, long-term consulting gig where, you know, like the boys do, where you go in and you set it up and you make sure it's running well and then you just sort of check in every once in a while. That's something that my body could handle at least, yeah. You refer to Anissa in the present tense in the cookbook, though. Well, it's because I wrote it when we still had it. Is that yeah. what it was? I thought yeah. it was maybe like a sign of things to come. Yeah. Okay, it was just more of the time. When you say the boys, what does that mean exactly? You say the boys. There's a lot of boy chefs that get those. Like, the, there aren't too many girl chefs that get those those deals. I didn't want to. I, I wasn't necessarily going to go into that. I don't think I sent you that in the question prep. The the gender and the boys. But are you feeling? How are you feeling right now about the boys in the industry? Keep it very vague and very open. That's that's a really yeah that's that that's a Pandora's box right there. Yeah. <laughs> you really want me to go there? <laughs> I do actually. I think some people in the room would like you to. Yeah, I mean, How are you feeling right now? Yeah. 
how you feeling about your industry that you've really fostered all these relationships? That's the first question I asked. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, you know, it's high time that we've we've had this reckoning, and um, you know, it's not nec- nothing's been solved. You know, that we still have a lot of work to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think we should be patting ourselves on the back anytime soon. I mean, did you did you witness a lot of abuse in the kitchen? Of course, of course, it was. Yeah, it was. A, you know, it was, that's what it was. You know, it was just. You know, especially when you grow up in the French system, it's just it's like a military. You know, um, yeah, and then that, you know, the sexual harassment is something that, you know, I, I would assume happens in, you know, every industry. I think it's particularly bad in restaurants, um, just because that's been the culture. Uh, and that culture needs to change, um, you know, which I think we're, you know, some people are, 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 are opening restaurants that, that do treat their employees better. And that's, um, you know, and that, you know, those are men and women, um, that are doing that. So, um, we just need more of them and we need that across the board now. Should we be protesting with our pocketbook? Should we be not going to these restaurants when you hear about? Even the even the the faintest rumor or the faintest mention or questionable behavior about maybe taking over a restaurant from a previous harasser, even though you ha- that person taking over hasn't necessarily done anything physically wrong. You're, t- you're talking about the spotted pig. Yes, I am talking about yeah. the spotted pig. That was a more dramatic effect, but you brought it up. I mean, <laughs> okay. So should I go to Prune? I mean, should I support Gabriel? Should I support that chef because of this decision that she? has backed out of I'm not gonna go there but I don't think anyone should have gone to um you know I think it was I, I think that was the morally wrong a morally wrong decision to go and um uh, you know to 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 try to reopen or try to keep keep um the spotted pig open I think um you know the name the spotted pig is a problem you know there's a place that they call the rape room there I mean you can't that that shouldn't keep yeah no i don't think we should i don't think anyone should eat there um and i certainly didn't think um gabrielle should should have gone and she knows this i talked to her about it yeah, um, okay you guys we're, we're friendly yeah so um yeah um yeah i mean it just what does that say to all the people all the victims of um sexual harassment uh of of sexual assault um across the world and that's just it's, it's, that's horrible to me. I just, I, I, I can't get past that. Yeah. I'm going to uh, paraphrase Helen Rosner on Twitter. Close the damn restaurant. <laughs> um, well, thank you for going there. I was, I wanted to be organic. I'm glad you, we talked about it. Um, hey, it's, it's a big yeah, part of it. like, come on, come on. <laughs> was it, wasn't trying to go there, <laughs> but let's, I guess let's talk more about solo dining. I mean, is this something that I know you, you're, you're in a relationship now. You write about this in the book, right? Am I correct? So yes, you're I'm in a relationship. relationship yeah. Um, I know like books are printed and things change. So, but do you di- do you still find uh, cooking for yourself therapeutic in a way? Do you still do it quite often? Or well, yeah, actually now I mean my my girlfriend just went back to work full time and she's often not home for dinner. Um, yeah, and so there's there's certain things that she doesn't really like that I really like <laughs> that um, you know. 
I'll make for myself, and yeah, yeah. And, and that's satisfying. Yeah. I agree. It is. It is satisfying to cook for yourself yeah. and cook the food you really want to. Yeah, and you eat. feel like you've accomplished something, you know, and then it, and you have leftovers. Shit, right? If, if you want them, okay. If you want if them. you want them, yeah. So yeah, I guess apparently like a couple of people have been complaining that there's no leftovers in my book, and I was like, well. You know, multiply by three or four or however many times you want to, like, you know, have leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to close it. Solo's the book. And thank you so much, Nita. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Here's Matt with Matt Sartwell of New York City cookbook store Kitchen Arts and Letters. Matt Sartwell, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome. I've I've been a, a customer uh, at Kitchen Arts and Letters since, I think, 2003. I moved here in 2002, so I only had a year where I didn't know of your existence. Well, we're glad to have you a part of it. Um, you know, as a small business, you're always learning that you have to keep getting the word out, and uh, you think you've saturated the market, and you never have. And I wanted to ask you to come in to talk about the the fall season, which is typically the the big season for cookbooks. Um, but first, just tell me why do you love cookbooks? <laughs> um, I love cookbooks for the most part because they end up being another way to tell a story. I think that's one of the most important things that books do for people. And uh, cookbooks can tell a personal story, a cultural story, a historical story. Sometimes all three of them together in very intimate and interesting and intricate ways. And if you're talking about food, which is something that you engage in every day uh, for the most part, then you're telling something about yourself and about the place that you've come from and the place that you're in. And there can be cookbooks that are extremely practical. You know, how do I bake something that's gluten-free? But most books go beyond that. And they tell you something about why it is that somebody's excited to be in the kitchen. And if you can pick up some of that enthusiasm, uh, some of that insight, then I think your your life is richer. Absolutely agree. It aligns what we do at Taste. Uh, we think of food as uh, as a way of learning about culture and other people who maybe we're not aware of. That said... What do you think of all these Instapop, Instant Pot <laughs> cookbooks that have been flooding the market? They're not quite achieving what you just said. Uh, no, I don't think I don't think that's that's their goal. Uh, I came down early and hard against the number of Instapot books in this season. I think when my count exceeded forty five, <laughs> uh, I really let the hammer fall. Um, I'm carrying two, and uh, they're both by Melissa Clark, because I know and trust her. And I'm sure there are other nice ones out there, but that's been completely adequate to our needs. Publishers are always obliged to chase a certain number of trends. Um, They have to pile up money on sort of quick and fast projects in order to take more interesting risks uh, as more unusual books come down the road. So I'm happy to let somebody else handle selling all those books. I mean, you can go to Costco. You can buy them when you order, you know, your toilet paper online. On a website we will not mention. Uh, On many websites that (laughs) we won't mention. But so they're making people happy. Some of them are are coming out of cultures where, like Indian food, where uh, pressure cookers have actually a longstanding role and are, you know, and make a lot of sense. Others are clearly exploitative. And it's just easiest for me not to have my hand in that well said, diplomatic, and I appreciate the sentiment. 
the Kitchen Arts and Letters opened in 1983. You started working there in 1991. But just give me a little sense of the history of the store. Why did it open in, in 83? And, and really, was it always focused on cookbooks? Well, yes. Uh, it Food and drink has always been the focus. Uh, Knock Waxman founded the store in 1983. He'd been an editor for many years with uh, HarperCollins and then with Crown Books primarily. And Knock wanted to work for himself. And a bookstore seemed to be a great way to do that. It meant being able to talk about things he loved all day long. And he was looking for a specialty area that uh, had a devoted and dedicated audience and that fit with his own interests. So it was either food and drink or sports. And he weighed them in the balance and decided that more people made their living from food and drink, and he would have a steadier clientele base. Meaning chefs would be customers, food professionals would be customers. Chefs, caterers, journalists, food historians, which were at that point really an emerging category. There weren't a lot of them, or at least not a lot, who were being taken seriously. And that was the audience he decided he wanted to serve. I mean, I think he would have been delighted to talk about baseball uh, with people all year round, but food was a pretty close, pretty close to his heart. Nock had been a uh, Southeast Asian studies major in college, so that kind of uh, anthropological approach to looking at, at a subject was also near and dear to his heart. So he opened up in the building that we're still in, although in a, a smaller space, it, it was about half the size of what we are. And where is that exactly? We're at uh, 1435 Lexington, which is between 93rd and 94th on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, and we're in an apartment building where the people who run the co-op board love us. So it's been a real boon to us in the age of soaring Manhattan rents that we, we're loved by our neighbors. Oh, that's such a good thing. I had no idea that you, you had that sense of community with your, with your landlord. Yes. It's, it's, you know, given all the stories you hear about people in New York having uh, their rents jacked up, we've been extremely fortunate. I feel Bonnie Slotnick got a similar deal for a new shop in the East Village, too. Yeah. She, uh, she got really badly shafted by her old landlord, yeah. and she found somebody who was delighted to have her there. And that makes all the difference to a business that is less about uh, turning everything over as quickly possible and more about making people happy when they come in the door. And also serving a purpose for the professionals in search of these out-of-print books. I mean, it's nice to have a community, but you really are serving a purpose for a very specific uh, profession, which is food yes. professionals. And and you want you want someone to come in not to feel the pressure of buy, buy, buy. I have yeah. to make a sale to you today. So um, in, a, in a place like a bookstore uh, where people want to come in and ask questions as much as they want to necessarily shop, not having to make a giant rent uh, not every month is is helpful. Uh, Julia Child and James Beard were famous customers. I think Anthony Bourdain has mentioned he mentioned it often as one of his stores. Um, do you have any memories of these famous customers? Well, um, my experiences with Julia were entirely uh, limited to the telephone, and I have to say there was still something of a thrill to pick up the phone and and hear a voice on the other end, sort of fluting away, saying, "This is Julia Child." So, um, but knock. Remember, the very first time she came in, uh, the store had just gotten a write-up on the Times, and Julia came in, and she was sort of uh, fluttering and excited to be there. And she went to the French section. She kicked off her shoes. She sat down on the floor and pulled literally every book on French food that the store had off the shelf. Um, so she had a really delightful time. Beard um, was mostly a phone customer. He was at the end of his life when the store opened, but he was very supportive and sent a lot of people to us. Barbara Kafka, who was one of his strong disciples, lived in our neighborhood, and she was relaying stories to him and information. 
Um, you know, over the years, we've seen a lot of people. Edna Lewis used to come in, really remarkable, striking woman. I mean, even if you had no idea that one of the major American chefs was in the store, she arrested your attention because she had so much presence. Um, and over the years, we've continued to see uh, leading chefs, people like Riley Dufresne and Dan Barber uh, come in, um, Alain Ducasse. I remember I was a snowstorm in February, and I was sure nobody was going to come in for hours and hours. And suddenly I looked up, and there was a, rather incongruously, a man in a cowboy hat who spoke only French. And it took me about two minutes to realize that it was, that it was Ducasse. Ducasse, wow. Um, and we try to keep the store relevant to people at at the high professional level, people at the home level. Uh, it's a bit of a balancing act. But um, if you talk to people a little bit, you can learn what they're hoping for and, and try and find them the right book. And our chefs coming in, I've heard stories where they'll come in and, you know, they, maybe they work for a large company and they, they'll buy maybe 10 books, 15 books if they're focusing on a new dish or a new special or even a new concept. Yes, that's that's one of the things we do. Uh, sometimes people call up in advance and say, hey, I'm coming in in two days. Pull out everything you can on, on this particular thing. Um, I can remember Alex Guarnaschelli came in once uh, and sort of burrowed into a corner of the store, and I spent hours ferrying all kinds of things over to her because she kept reading something and moving on to another idea. And, I mean, she left with four bags of books. So, I mean, it, it wasn't that she was just hogging my attention. Of course not. And that's such an amazing part of your store is that you'll have these repeat customers coming in and buy massive quantities and not do the easy thing, which is like click, 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 right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's something to be said for actually looking at the book before you make yes. a purchase. And uh, websites are terrific. We have a website. We're happy to sell books that way. Um, but I think you when you're looking at a website, you're largely getting a handle on the book as the publisher wants you to think about it, which isn't necessarily the way you need to understand it. You may not, you know, you're, you're asking a question that is tangential and you have to figure out whether the book does the job. And by spending time with it, you can. Let's talk about the new season. Uh, we're dropping this in December. It's the midst of, of, of holiday gifting. It's when a lot of cookbooks are sold. So what are you, what are you seeing this fall? What are you liking? What aren't you feeling so much? Uh, this fall is a crazy time. Uh, I've been known to rage a little bit about how much gets dumped into the fall. I love um, your presence, by the way, on social media and Facebook. I love it. It's <laughs> thank so you. great. Um, Not rage. It's like polite rage. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I understand that there are people out there writing these books who really don't want to hear them slammed because they've poured their heart into them. But I think publishers as businesses make some decisions that aren't always necessarily in their own best interest. Um, so this fall, we have some really amazing, powerful books. So we have the new Rene Redzepi book on fermentation from Noma. This is a technically very complicated book that makes sense for people who are either really into fermentation or who are running a restaurant uh, and need that kind of material. We've sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies of this book. Um, and that's selling right alongside uh, Yotamata Lengi Simple and, uh, and the new uh, Ina Garten Cook Like a Pro. And these are all books with incredibly high profiles that uh, have no trouble selling. I mean, people just walk in the door. They already know they want They ask for it. Where is the new yeah, Yotam book? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, because those are people who have really established their reputations. 
What makes it harder in the fall, then, is for people who aren't really well-known to get their book out and to get attention. And there are a few things that can sort of rise to the top amidst all the noise. And I don't really mean to call Yota Madalangi and Rene Redzepi noise, but those books like that can suck all the air out of the room in a way. Um, but Nick Sharma, for instance, has a book uh, from Chronicle called Season, which is a really remarkable flavor adventure. He's pulling uh, things out of his uh, Indian childhood. Uh, he's drawing on some of what he knows in his training as a scientist and is also the fact that he now lives in California and he's got access to all these amazing foods and he's producing really fascinating, flavorful food. It doesn't look like anybody else's book and that's that's surprising. Do you have a soft spot in your heart for debuts, for, for first-time authors, like trying to give them that little bit of boost that maybe they need, unlike the other authors who maybe have their fourth book coming out? Uh, we do. We, we always look for something uh, that we can turn people on to, um, that they might not be seeing, uh, books that might not be getting a lot of attention. And there are some people who we've stuck with uh, all along. Uh, every time a new Diana Henry book comes out, we're, we're behind that really hard. Di- I mean, she's on her ninth book. But from, uh, from the very first one, Roast Fig, Sugar, Snow, we'd fallen in love with her. So we're happy to, to give that a push. There's... There's so much going on right now, um, but we still have to take the time to stop with somebody and talk to them and say, who's this for? Is it for you? What do you like? What, have you, what do you feel like you're not doing? You know, where do you want to push yourself? Uh, and then we can get people to, closer to a great book. I know we're, we're not quite in the midst of the holiday season, but have there been any surprises this, this fall with any successful books that have kind of been a lot of calls that maybe you weren't when you saw the catalog in the summer you didn't <laughs> think of? You know, the, funny, the funniest thing isn't a cookbook. Um, there is a small paperback by a guy named Joe DiStefano with photographs by Clay Williams called 111 Places in Queens to Know. Uh, and it's primarily food. It's a guidebook. It's in the window. And, and people are coming in all the time to pick it up. I am so excited to see a book like that get attention because it's coming from a small publisher. But it's, it's speaking to something that, that people wanted to know, even if I hadn't anticipated that it would be anywhere near this big. What, are, what aren't you as, as hot on NL? You'll, you'll be diplomatic, I'm sure. Uh, well, I mean... <laughs> You're not going to be diplomatic. Now, now I have to be diplomatic. Um, <laughs> no, you don't have to be diplomatic, to be clear. Setting aside the flood of um, of instant pot books and and the sort of, you know, formulaic check three dietary uh, restriction boxes, um, we're still finding that publishers are looking at where they've succeeded before and repeating. So uh, I get a new Italian book, and it's about Tuscany or Sicily or Rome. There are great books out there on Tuscany and Sicily and Rome, and some of them are quite recent. But if you came in and asked me for a book about Basilicata, I couldn't provide you one. If you came in and asked me uh, for a book about uh, the Alto Aldige or even a book about the food of Milan, which is the biggest city in Italy, the most traveled to place. And the wealthiest. And the wealthiest, and a place with incredibly overlapping culinary traditions. There's nothing from from American publishers. Um, If you asked me for a book about places, famous places like Normandy in France, or Alsace, where the food is distinctive and, and has contributed a lot to American 
restaurant culture because of chefs who have come from there, there are no books. And then that says nothing about whole continents, which are largely ignored. So we struggle all the time to find interesting... Let's keep rolling with this. When you talk about continents, are we thinking about maybe Africa? Uh, thinking a lot about Africa. There are some some bright exceptions. Uh, Pierre Thiam's books on uh, on Senegal have been brilliant. But why the hell are there no books from a major American publishers on Ethiopian food? And that's a question I've been asking them for two decades. So it's not like this is an old, you know, a theme I've just brought up. There are all kinds of parts of the world like that where there are distinct, rich traditions that deserve full-scale explorations and where I think the food is going to really pay off. I think there's a lot to be said about about the food from these places. And because maybe because no editors go on vacation there, there are no books. And it's the same way, you know, find a book in English on Venezuelan food. Yeah, South America is an absolute blind spot for American publishers. I think it is a language barrier. I believe it is has a lot to do with travel, and it hasn't. A lot of the countries like Venezuela have are not great for tourism right now, and I think we're just not seeing that. But you're getting requests for these books. I, Absolutely, if, all and, the time. And so there's demand for an Ethiopian book. Like, you've had calls. That is That is probably the biggest area where we have to just tell people, I'm sorry, we don't have anything. There have been a few Ethiopian books independently published in the United States by people of Ethiopian heritage. They last for a time. Some of them are good. But those small self-publishers don't usually stick with a book for a long time. It's it's a lot of effort to keep a self-published book going. And unless you're making a pile of money at it, eventually you're going to say, you know, I'd rather spend time with my grandchildren. What about um, outside of, of cultures and travel? Um, are there any uh, technique books that you haven't seen? Is there, I mean, we've seen the pickling. We've seen certainly sous vide books. But is there a technique that you get calls for that maybe you're not seeing books for? For, for the home audience, I would say no. I think... Great technique books can still come along and and find an audience, um, but it's not as if I would identify a, a crying hole. Um, there are some specific uh, things in the pastry world where uh, books have been scarce. Until two years ago, we didn't have anything recent on on the exciting topic of laminated doughs, which sounds esoteric, but if you've ever enjoyed a croissant, you really appreciate somebody who knows how to make a, a laminated dough. Um, somebody called uh, the other day and asked for books on uh, on chocolate panning, which is the process by which things are tumbled for a long time in a chocolate coating so that you get a very round, smooth surface around, say, a nut. Um, and there are no books on that. Um, I'm not saying that every publisher in town should charge out and do something like that, but there are areas where uh, technical expertise is is useful, and somebody could really, uh, somebody who who knows what they're talking about, could do really well. I'm not suggesting that somebody should just say, "Oh, I could write a book on chocolate panning. Let me find out about that." What about um, rare and out of print books? Is there just this this one book that you've been trying to get your hands on for? For, for decades, for, for years? The, the mythical book that I think I was asked for the first week I worked in the store that I've still never seen, and we know it exists because we've seen photographs of it, and this, this will sound like it's completely out of left field, is the Johnny Mathis cookbook. And there are people out there who are desperate for this book. There are Mathis fans, I think, more than cookbook people, um, but it, it's, it's incredibly elusive. That's been the the real 
hard one. There are other things that, you know, that come up all the time. People are still looking for Claudia Fleming's The Last Course, uh, a book that uh, has a sort of a legendary reputation. A lot of the hard, really hard things are, are things that nobody asks for again, so they don't stand out quite as much. Um, it's Nock does most of the work searching for the out-of-print books. That's his uh, area. Of, but you feel the calls. I'm sure you get a yeah. ton of calls for these books. Yeah, and, and often people are looking not for something that is rare in the fine collector sense, but it's something that has emotional significance to them. It was a book that was part of their childhood. And, um, and sometimes they don't even really know exactly what it was. They can remember the color and the size and a couple of recipes that were in it. And um, we can sometimes work with that. We try really hard to, you know, to do that. So there was an instance a few years ago where two sisters came in. They wanted this book that their mother had had, and they were fighting about what the title was. But they knew when their mother had gotten married, and they knew a couple of the dishes in it. And fortunately, it turned out to have been one of the major cookbooks from the late or from the early 50s, I guess it was. And uh, and we were able to pull out four or five different books and narrow down to the one. That's so amazing. I mean, how, what's your process to find these books? I mean, oftentimes you probably have customers who aren't as as online savvy. So you might do you check Abe for certain books. Well, we, these were books that we had in the store. You had in the store. We had, oh, we had, had them in the store. Um, we have a very extensive selection in the basement. It's not browsable yeah. because the condition of many of the books is not such that we want people pulling them off the shelf I and, see. and so forth. Um, but in this case, we were able... You know, knock went to the basement. He pulled, you know, came back up with a couple of armfuls of books, and we sat down and looked through them with with them there, and we found the book. Um, and it was it was a, um, and I'm not going to be able to remember the title at this point, but it was a book that was not one of the like really dominant books of the era, but it had been fairly popular in its time. So. We were lucky that it was something that uh, we were likely to have. On. Such a wonderful experience just to go to your store and, and have that moment where you're having books shown to you. It's such a rarity well, we, in our world. We, we love that. I mean, people come in sometimes and say, show me something uh, I haven't seen before. And the, the risk in that situation is that we're going to drown them because we can you know, start in one corner and, and, and start pulling. And whether it's something that's older, I mean, or something that comes from a faraway location, we have a book in the store that comes from uh, a region in India called Ladakh, mm-hmm. which is at the base of the Himalayas. Uh, it's a place where um, a lot, there's been a lot of recent internal immigration within India, and the local foodways are being overwhelmed by uh, foodways from elsewhere. So this book was written to preserve a lot of tradition specific to this valley. That's so valuable. Um, and, you know, in another 20 years, are those foodways going to exist? It's too early to tell, but it, but we have this you book. You have the book. Um, so is the cookbook business healthy right now? Would you, would you color it that? I think it is. Um, there's... A lot of up and downs in in all kinds of uh, parts of the publishing business. And I think one thing that um, gets forgotten is that there are sort of two broad types of cookbook buyers. Those people who buy a book, a cookbook once a year as a gift uh, for someone else, and they're not really serious about it. And then there are people who are in the market year round, who are always paying attention and so forth. That audience is steady and strong. Um, I, uh, I think there 
always looking for something new and fresh. There is that audience that, you know, buys a gift for their aunt or uncle or girlfriend or, uh, or boyfriend who um, looks for a name that they recognize and name recognition may be all that's necessary. But we're in an era where recipes are, are free. You, I mean, you can go online and type in... There's too many recipes, probably. Well, there are too many disconnected recipes. Good call. You can go in and, you know, type in uh, Blanquette de Veau or Lemon Bars and come up with lots of recipes from them. But you don't necessarily know anything about the person whose recipe, you know, who's providing the recipe. Do they... Have they ever eaten Blanquette de Veau in France? Um, you know, do they care about its relationship to traditional preparation? Or do they want it to be ready in 20 minutes? And That's not happened in 20 minutes. Probably not. No, but, well, you know, maybe with some cream of mushroom soup. You know, there's probably somebody out there who's tried. Um, and so when you buy a book, you're getting a lot of knowledge about the person who's who's presenting you this material and they're they're telling you how they've gotten to the point where they know enough to to write this recipe for you and a book that doesn't deliver some of that story a book that doesn't make you a promise essentially and and show you how it's trying to deliver that is probably not going to be a successful book and the astute writers that we have today are giving you a story of some kind. They're, they're drawing you in. They're helping you along. So whether it's, you know, Julia Tertian talking in her, uh, in her books about how she cooks for her wife and how making her wife happy is a big part of making herself happy in the kitchen, uh, that's a story that you understand that this is part of a happy home and, and good food can make for a great table conversation and a great and a great evening after a hectic day or it's Naomi Duguid going off and talking about Persian food but saying hey it's not just Iran but it's Azerbaijan and Armenia and Georgia which share so many different influences and and similarities in geography and uh, and culture and agriculture and that book is is giving you something other than the recipes and so as writers get smarter that way, I think they keep opening the world up for cookbooks, and I don't, I don't think they're in danger. God, Beyond the Great Wall is like one of my favorite books. Yeah, because there's still no great coverage on that part of China. Matt Sartwell, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>